into God's presence in worship. Let's just come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you for what we read in your word, and we want to thank you that we know that that word reveals the desires of your heart for each one of your people. That as we have faith in Jesus, you want us to know the burden of our sin dealt with, lifted from us, taken away. Father, we pray that that we'll come tonight ready to hear your word and with hearts that are open, with a real desire that our lives might be transformed. Lord, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I read some time ago the story of an old man, one of the American frontiersmen, the mountain men, who'd never in his life seen much of civilization. And one day, one day while he was wandering in the forest, he found a mirror. He'd never seen a mirror before, so when he looked at his reflection, he said, my goodness, if it isn't a picture of my old pappy. So he took the mirror, that's what it's like sometimes, so he took the mirror home, thoroughly pleased with it, and he, he hid it away. It was so precious, he hid it away in his private possessions. A while later, his wife was searching through these private possessions when she came upon the mirror. Her instant reaction was, so that's the ugly old witch he's been going on with behind my back for all these years. (laughs) Now that for me is a, a kind of illustration of the problems and confusion that can arise when for one reason or another we refuse or fail to see ourselves as we really are. And that's one reason why I love the Psalms, precisely because they deal with human life as it really is, and because they help us to then see ourselves as we really are. For if this morning we dealt with one of life's crippling problems, and we did the problem of depression, then tonight, in this Psalm, we deal with another. That is the impact of guilt in our lives when we refuse to deal with the sin that's there in our heart. Yes, this psalm looks at this, but what it also just so wonderfully reminds us of, and we're going to elaborate on this later, is the fact that there's always a way back to God. That there is never a time when we become so entangled in our sin or so contaminated by the the filth of sin. There's never a time when God is not willing to extricate us, to free us from it, that he's not willing to take us and to cleanse us and renew us. For if ever a man had become seemingly inescapably tangled in the web of his own sin, then that man was David. If ever a man had seemingly become so filthy and degraded and corrupted that cleansing again appeared an impossibility, then again, that man was David. And Sandra shared a bit earlier, but we read of the immensity and sheer horror of of David's sin, of his journey into sin in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That's that story of how David, seeing Bathsheba, desired her and then committed adultery with her. How upon her becoming pregnant, he attempted to use her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to cover their tracks 
But Uriah was a man of such noble character, a man who was so faithful to his king and to his own soldiers that he refused to use the opportunity to be with his wife that David's calling him back from the front line of the army presented him with. And so David's initial scheme was defeated. But David wasn't. Because immediately he devises another plan. This time Uriah is to be deserted. He's to be left alone in the front line of the battle. And of course the anticipated, the hope for happens. Uriah is killed and after a respectable time of mourning, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And for me, the the overwhelming impression that really almost takes your breath away with its intensity is the absolute cynicism and hard-heartedness of David throughout this whole sordid episode. I mean, what we find here wouldn't be out of place in the front page of any of today's tabloids. It's almost like a script for an EastEnders episode. And what makes this even more difficult is attempting to reconcile the David that we see here, this hard and ruthless cynic, with the David we read of elsewhere in his earlier days. The David whose very name means beloved of God. The David who gave himself totally in response to God's love to be God's servant. And who was then, because of that heart of his, chosen by God to be king. Because of his love. Because of his fearless obedience. Because he had the very moral qualities that here, so obviously, he lacks. You know, what a lesson there is here for each one of us. Because you see, I'm sure that this transformation didn't happen overnight. Now this was a gradual process. So gradual I'm pretty sure David didn't even notice it as just bit by bit and day by day his growing worldly power and prosperity ate away at his faith and his trust in God. For that trust that had been so vital in his earlier life, in his struggles with Goliath and then with Saul, Israel's former king, just didn't seem so important as he reigned unopposed over Israel. And so, as his trust in God diminished, so too did God's importance in his life. For let's face it, why be obedient to a God who isn't central, who isn't Lord anymore in our lives? And that's the the gradual process that I believe led David to this position here of outright rebellion against the Lord. But how easy it is for us to fall into the same kind of trap as David. To start off our Christian life as joyous and fulfilled converts, full of the joy of God, but then gradually get into that same place as David here, where trust and obedience just isn't as important to us as once it was. You see, we too, we begin to put our trust in our equivalent of worldly powers in institutions, or maybe in people. And so gradually, trust in God, obedience to God, begins to get pushed down the list of our life priorities. And then as time goes by, we maybe begin to get on, as they say, a little bit in life. And so our rut becomes a comfortable, deluxe model. And we trust in those things 
we treasure above all those things that we have. Or we maybe don't get on as well materially as we'd like, as well as we think we should, as well as others seem to do. And so we decide in our hearts that obedience hasn't worked. So why try to have? Why live for God? But then, in the midst of this, temptation comes our way. And with now no real foundation, no actual active foundation in the Lord, so we fall headlong into that. And before long, our lives are devastated by our sin and by its consequences and the guilt that it brings. Again, as we said, the lesson of this psalm is that there is always a way back to God. And that's what we're going to move on to look at now, at that way, that road back, and the signs that show that we're actually on that road in our lives. Well, David here became aware of this road the the day that he gave an audience to Nathan, the prophet. So we'll move along the way with him. And as we go, let's just continually be asking ourselves, are these signs that I see here, are they living realities in my life? And if they're not, then I assure you that they actually, they should be. And if, you know, we see that they're not, then it's a little bit like playing Monopoly. We've got to go back to go. You know, it may well be that for us, it's at the beginnings of David's journey. It's at his goal that our problems lie. And the beginning of this journey here were an awareness of sin. Because you see, David... He was in that position in life that it's really so easy to get ourselves into. That is, he was so caught up with self and his own interest. He was so absorbed with his own power and because of that with his own priorities that he didn't here seem to have even fully realized, taken in the magnitude and monstrosity of the thing that he'd done. He was aware of it, but it didn't seem to, to dominate him as it should until Nathan came and then told him that simple story of the poor man who had only one little lamb, one lamb, and yet who had even that lamb stolen by a rich and powerful man, taken from him. And straight away, as David hears this story, David is outraged. He demands that this cruel, heartless man be punished. And it's then that the words of Nathan come ringing into his ear and hit him straight in the heart. You are that man. You are the man, you who stole Uriah from Uriah, that which was his most precious, his wife Bathsheba. You who didn't even stop at that, but who also took his life. You are that man. Well, now, David, David's distraught. For he has been brought face to face with the word of God, with the judgment of God, with God's verdict on his life. And so suddenly, there and then, he's shaken right out of his complacency. You see, God had been pushed by David out of the picture. But God won't stand that. And God forces himself back center screen into David's life. And David's attempt at ignoring or maybe trivializing of what he's done, of what he's been doing in every area of life, 
is forgotten. And he is overcome by a deep awareness of his sin. You know, that's the way that so often God works in our lives. For we begin to, to slip in our Christian commitment. And maybe we manage to keep a front up, maybe not, but we know that we're slipping nevertheless. And we maybe don't sin in such an obviously outrageous fashion as David does here, but then again, none of us have got that kind of power or opportunity. But in our hearts, that's what matters. We are every bit as bad and as far away from God as David was. And maybe like David, we use all kind of devices to try and avoid facing up to this, to where we really are. And while we don't exactly know what David's thinking patterns here were, yet we do know that there are certain classic, typical ways in which people try to avoid facing up to their guilt and sin. You know, each one with a history that stretches right back to the very beginning of the human race. For example, excuses. I mean, they were even there, weren't they, in the, in the very garden of Eden. It was all about excuses. As the old saying goes, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Thank you. <laughs> you see, how natural it is, as human beings, for us to try to make excuses to avoid the responsibility for our sin. Roy Clements, in his little book on the Psalms, he says here, a child has hardly learned to talk before it has learned to make excuses. And of course, modern thought has greatly increased our repertoire of excuses enormously. Freud has taught us that we can blame our parents. Marx has taught us that we can blame the capitalist system. We can blame our hormones. We can even blame our diet these days. Now maybe that's the way David tried here to avoid facing up to his sin. By excuses. It was the pressure of the job that had so weakened his resistance. It was Bathsheba's fault for being so beautiful it was Uriah's fault for being such a noble, stupid fool. Or maybe instead of this, David went the way of suppression. Trying to hide his sin, trying to hide his guilt in some dark corner of his life and his heart and mind. Trying to ignore it, trying to bury it under the mountain of that busy life. Or maybe the endless pursuit of pleasure. That's way a lot of people try to deal with their guilt and sin. That's the way they do it. They try to fill their lives so full with stuff that there's no room for it. But you know, they are never ultimately successful and neither was David. Because surely that phrase there in verse 8, the bones you have crushed, they tell us how David really felt in the midst of his experience. That despite perhaps keeping up an outer front of all being well, yet within, here and now, when he could hold it back no longer, in those unguarded moments, those lonely, secret moments, he was tortured, racked, 
by the knowledge of what he'd actually done. But you know, we can do this. We can try and avoid facing up to our sin, but then suddenly, and often when we least expect it, God breaks into our lives in power. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us maybe through another Christian. He speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit in one way or another. And like David, we are shaken out of our complacency as we become overwhelmingly aware of our sin. The question is though, when God acts in this way, in his grace, how do we respond to it? Do we simply push our heads down deeper into the sand? Do we refuse to listen to the witness of our hearts, of our spirit, of God's spirit? And so do we still try to maintain the pretense, even to ourselves, that the sham that we're living now is what the Christian life is really all about? Is this the response that we make? Certainly, it's not the response here that David makes. For he became overpoweringly, truly overpoweringly aware of his sin. See in verse 1 he says, blot out my transgressions. Then in verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now you see, these two pictures that we have here are of a book being wiped clean and of foul, filthy rags being washed again and again and again in an attempt to cleanse them. Now you see, when we take these two pictures in unison with verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Then we get the impression, bringing all that together, of David suddenly in this moment of revelation seeing himself as he really was and realizing that behind that kingly facade that he'd maybe tried to project before men, that he was in fact, in reality, before God, a filthy beggar. Indeed, in verse 7, David there cries out, Cleanse me, O God. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And you see the relevance of this was that part of what the the hyssop plant was used for was by the priests in a ceremony of cleansing to signify the fact of someone's healing from leprosy. So you see, in this moment of revelation, that's how David suddenly saw his sin and saw himself like someone defiled by leprosy. And you know, this revelation, this awareness of sin that David receives here isn't simply a kind of emotional sort of experience. No, because we read here, we see that he becomes very aware of the content of his sin, of just exactly what his sin really consists of. For verse 4 he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now here, see, David shows himself of what to be aware of what actually lay at the heart of his sin. He realizes that above all else, his sin at heart is an act of rebellion against God. And it's that 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 fills him with shame and with fear, that he has done that which offends God. 
And so that which causes God great sorrow and arouses God's wrath. Now you see, this doesn't mean that David is unaware of or he, he doesn't care about what his sin has meant for Uriah or Bathsheba or even for himself. No, but what it does mean is that rightly, David is far more aware of what his sin means to God. And it's this awareness, that this reawakened awareness of the holiness of God and his sin and its light that causes him such anguish. But David, not only though, shows here that he knows what lies at the heart of his sin, as well as that, he shows that he's painfully aware also of the extent of his sin. Verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, David realizes in this moment that this sin isn't just a one-off act that's kind of inconsistent with his true character, that it was a, a bad day, but rather that this sin, monstrous as it was, brings to light what his true character as a man actually is. And that is that as a man, from the beginnings of his existence, he's part of a race that lives in rebellion against God. As one writer here puts it, sin isn't like a fungus that in some way gets attached to us, sticks to us as we pass through life. No, rather sin, an inclination to sin, is part of the very essence of of who we are. We are by nature sinners. I want to tell you that this kind of experience and awareness of sin is something that is absolutely fundamental to any true spiritual experience. Whether that experience be conversion or, or some other act of spiritual renewal as we, we progress along the road of holiness, the road to Christ-likeness. We must at some point see our sin for what it is if that Christian experience is true. That it's part of the fabric of our fallen human nature. It's part of who we are. It's part of us. We must realize the true offense that lies at the heart of sin. And whenever our awareness of sin becomes anything less than this, Whenever we maybe see sin as just the, the odd thing we do, the odd mistake we make, rather than as part of our human nature. And whenever a sense of sorrow for ourselves or for others predominates, rather than sorrow at, what, at the offense that we've caused to God, whenever that happens, then we know that there is something wrong in our understanding of sin, because it's certainly not a biblical one. And you know, it seems to me that the problems that many Christians have stem from this fact in the whole sin area. For they think that they're confessing their sin. When actually, really, what's wrong with them is wounded pride. It's the fact that they've let themselves down. Or they get confused between confession and remorse. You know, they feel sorry for themselves, sorry for others, sorry that they've been caught, sorry because of their sin's consequences and the hurt that it's brought. But you know, that's not 
confession. Confession at heart is sorrow because of the offence that we've caused against God. Sin that is not confessed though is undealt with sin. And that I fear is the problem. For many Christians, they're crippled with the guilt of undealt with sin. But David here though had no such problem. He understood his sin. And he knew that because of it he rightly stood under the judgment of God. Verse 4, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He knew all that. And yet, thank God, he also knew that because of God's great love, verse 1, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. He also knew that so, upon true heartfelt confession and repentance, a turning from his sin back to God, he knew that the door to God's forgiveness is always open. And with David now, we're going to go through that door as we move on to the next step in his journey back to God. And it is a sense of forgiveness. Because David's sense of forgiveness here it's just so obvious, isn't it? So unavoidable. And we've already looked at what he's done in terms of, of confession to secure it. But what I want to ask, and what I want to expand on really, because we've touched on it already, is how could David be so sure that, his, that forgiveness would be his? Is how could this man here, who had sinned so terribly, how could he be sure that he'd be forgiven again by the God he'd so badly let down? And the answer, quite simply, is his right understanding of and his trust in the grace of God. You see, David knows because he knows God's word, because he knows God's promise, because he knows his God that while ritual and empty words mean nothing to God, yet a broken and contrite heart a humble and truly repentant people. He knows that God cannot help responding to, cannot help himself but respond to this people. Because this is his nature. Because that's the kind of God he is. That's who he is. And David also knew that his own efforts, great though they might be, would actually never be enough to guarantee an ongoing experience of repentance. That he wouldn't be able to live in this new state of repentance, back in favour with God and in relationship with God. He couldn't do it himself. For this to happen, there had to be a work of God. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now you see here, when, when David asked God to create in him a pure heart and a steadfast spirit, what he's actually asking for is nothing less than a miracle. And yet, it's a miracle that God in his grace loves to perform. And it's a miracle that God does every time someone comes to new life in Christ Given us new birth, given us that recreated human nature, 
given us this. And it's a miracle. That although in that sense it cannot be repeated, yet it can be revived and renewed when God again breathes new life into what has almost become a spiritual corpse. It's when God breathes new life again into someone like David who's fallen so far from him, who's wandered so far away that really what they're actually in need of is spiritual resuscitation, the equivalent of a spiritual kiss of life from God. But notice, and this is wonderful, an example that so many of us, I think, need to try and and emulate, that David knows that once he knew and lived in the experience of this new life, And yet he knows that here he almost let it slip from his grasp. And that thought fills him with fear. So verse 12. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, help me now. Help me from this day forward to take such a positive delight in you. Fill my life in such a way that I'm never again tempted from you by this world and its empty promises and empty pleasures. But we're going to finish with the final stage in David's journey here back to God, and it's a, a new desire for worship and service. Because there is here, isn't there, there's a, a wonderful sense of joy in this psalm. It's verse 8 there. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed Rejoice. Now, you know, that word rejoice there could actually, and probably more accurately, be translated dance. And what it's saying is, let the bones you have crushed dance. And so the picture that, that we have here that's given here then is of David hearing God's word of forgiveness, receiving God's grace, and not being able to contain himself, to hold himself back, simply dancing with joy at the sound of it. And this joy spills over into his attitude to worship. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And you see, for years, David, as Israel's king, had been, you know, joining in worship. He'd even often been leading in worship. He'd gone there in the temple day by day and he'd gone through the motions But it had been dead and empty. But not now. Not now that finally things have come to a head and here is sin and guilt have been dealt with. No, now once more, worship lives for David. And what he's saying is, he is never going to, never wants to again, just go through those motions. And he wants to tell other people about it. He wants to go out there and tell others, others who because of their sin and guilt now feel distant maybe from a God who they once felt so close to. He wants to go out and tell others, others who've lost their joy in living for God and lost their joy in worship where once that joy overflowed in their lives. David wants to go and he wants to tell them, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. You see, he wants to tell them That there is a way back to God. That he has walked that way. There is a way to have your sin dealt with. There always is. 
because that is the grace of God. And tonight I want to tell you exactly the same thing. I want to say to you tonight that if your Christian living has become dry and empty and dead, could that maybe be because the sin or guilt in your life that needs dealt with? But maybe you know that. Maybe you know that tonight. Maybe you're sitting there and you're all too aware of your sin because your sin is there. It's like a big black cloud that's continually hanging over your life. But your problem is you feel that what you did is too terrible. What you did is too awful. You've let God down so badly. It's too bad for even God to forgive. Maybe tonight, that's the way you feel. But this is what the Word of God actually says. 1 John 2 verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ tonight can cleanse you from your sin. If only you're ready to confess that sin, to repent of it, and turn to God. God's here in His grace. And He's just waiting for us to reach out to Him. Let's come and pray. Father, we want to thank you tonight for your amazing love. We want to thank you that you're here in your grace, that you're here right now, and in Jesus Christ, you have dealt with all our sin. The sin of every person here has been dealt with through Jesus. And all we need to do tonight is come in faith, believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, confess our sin, and ask you to give us the strength to live for you. And you can cleanse us again. You can renew us again. You can lift us up and you can fill us with joy once more. Father, may your people here tonight reach out to you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.